Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm here with Father Boniface Hicks and I'm Joe Rocky. And Father, one of the things I wanted to bring up in today's cast is something that we all have in everyday life and might not actually articulate it. So I actually want to give the example from the Bible and then hopefully it makes sense. So we all have this natural instinct whenever we read something, um, especially a, a, a story like the Bible, to follow the main character and not really get into the motives or anything behind the secondary characters. So obviously in the Bible, the main character, the hero and everyone is, is Jesus. So you're, you're following what Jesus does. And we then get towards the end of the story, we get to the point where Pilate, Pontius Pilate comes into play and we never really kind of look it through his perspective. You know, he's a guy, he's a governor. His role as a job is essentially to keep the peace. He's put there as, and he has to coexist with the populace. And his number one constituency, or at least the way that the Bible articulates it, is the Jewish people. And they have their own person who's in charge. So he's kind of put in a situation where his primary job is to keep the peace. And his easiest way and most efficient way to do it is to keep the person who's in charge of the biggest group happy. So he kind of does what steps he can to do what's right and just with Jesus in the sense that he gives the Jewish people an out, take Barabbas, they don't. Caiaphas is all against that. And then he's there with, with, with now what? You know, do, do I let the whole province burn to the ground because I'm not giving Caiaphas what he wants? And then therefore his whole world gets implode because then he's failing at his job and all the repercussions there. So I know that that happens in everyone's lives in their own way. Essentially, when do I get involved? When is it okay to not get involved? And with so many moving parts in every element of his life, you know, to Pontius Pilate, he probably had hundreds of these types of situations come up on a fairly regular basis. And had there not been a Bible written about Jesus, no one would have ever known about it. So I guess kind of looking at it from that perspective and knowing that that's a part of human life, how do we how, how do we address that in real life and is my analogy even accurate in my synopsis? Well, I love the way that you're working with the scripture, Joe, in order to uh, make some connections. And we should make a, a little distinction that Exactly the way that Pilate's situation worked into the authority that he had and the responsibility that he had and the way he carried that office in its historical context is not exactly the same as the kinds of situations we have today. Comparison that you're making is a very good one in having compassion, understanding for people who have certain responsibilities today and imagining that he was you know, doing the best that he could. It turns out historically that Pilate was one of the most uh, vicious leaders that had ever served in the Roman Empire. 
And he was the only leader in the Roman Empire who was actually deposed from office because of excessive violence and torture. So he was a pretty wicked person, as it turns out. Kind of ruins that analogy a little bit. (laughs) It is. Well, it's interesting that that's not portrayed in the Bible. Um, The the authors of of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't highlight that aspect of Pilate. They, they presented him in a little bit more sympathetic way, which is interesting to note. One of the things it allows us to do then, now making the spiritual connection, which is what you were doing, Joe, I just wanted to distinguish those two modes of uh, reading Scripture, strictly its historical capacity, and then how does it apply to me today, which is really what we ought to be doing with Scripture, is making sure we start with one, but we also move to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that apply to me today? Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm faced with decisions that are difficult decisions, caught between a rock and a hard place. And I may try to make some compromises. We can have some sympathy for at least the way that the Bible presents Pilate, uh, which is a limited limitation on the historical reality, but, uh, you know, presents him in a way that he tried and he wrung his hands and he worried about it. His wife was warning him and he tried to satisfy the angry mob and some, you know, but just by beating this guy, by letting somebody else free. And then almost like he was backed into a corner and he had to accept that uh, this was how things would unfold. And one of the points of scripture in, in telling the story that was also to emphasize the role of the people, and ultimately we say all of us, some of that led to an anti-Semitism, a prejudice against the Jewish people saying they killed Christ, and that became a real problem at different times in history Mm -hmm. among uh, Catholics, among Christians. But what what we really read there is that we are the ones who insist on his destruction. So I have to put myself in the crowd. And we do that on Good Friday when we all say, crucify him, crucify him. Such hard words for us to speak every time we sin. So uh, the Bible does try to draw us into, it really wants to help us identify with Pilate how easily I get in these situations where I get compromised and I get drawn into a place that I don't want to be. And then... How do I handle that? Ultimately, Pilate says, I find no reason to condemn him. Well, why does he condemn him then? Mm-hmm. He have done it without him. And ultimately, he crumbled, and he gave in to that, even though he found no reason to condemn him. And so that's where we can see our tendency to become like a Pilate in our, in our own situation, that we don't stand up for someone, that we remain a bystander, that we don't take a stand to protect the weak uh, and the vulnerable. I'm not sure if I covered every aspect of your question, Joe. I feel like I missed no, no, I no, left no, something I, out. I, but... I think that, that that's a really good starting point. In fact, actually kind of thinking it through is – so I, given that historical context about how how bad Pilate was, I guess opens up even more to – the choice of Jesus chose to go there. I mean, he knew who was in charge where, 
and he yes. still chose to go to that city. Um, you know, that's a that's a thought that you know just that new information brings out about about that, and that's a there's a lot to that. You know, like you said, you know, the, the Bible doesn't make it seem like he's you know a butcher essentially, but at the end of the day, if that's what he was, and Jesus knew that, and he still went there, knowing that, you know, all of the uh, the heads of the Jewish Church at that point were really not happy with him. Um, which that's probably a, a a good question to dive into as we continue this cast. You know, what le- leads them to to getting so angry at him as as his teachings progress? Because one of the things that I've done over the last couple months is tried to read the Old Testament, and I'm kind of yet to get to a part where he, um, he being Jesus, actually did something contradictory to the Old Testament. Now, granted, I can say in full disclosure, there's parts of it I don't get, and part of it that's in, like, Ecclesiastics just um, does not seem like a happy story you should be telling people. But there's just, so I might not fully grasp it the way that I should, but going through the Old Testament, it just, I'm yet to see something where Jesus, you know, was supposed to go left and went right type deal. And I'm just. Well, you bring out some great points, Joe, that Jesus was hated, that the religious leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scholars of the law, came to a place of really hating him and wanting him dead. The crowds kind of go along with the rallying cry that may or may not understood exactly what they were yelling about. That tends to happen. Uh, why did they why did they hate him so much when, as you point out, he's not stepping way out of bounds from the Old Testament? Well, that's where we're going to have a, probably a variety of answers. The the simplest answer is pride. The religious leaders of the time had certain power, had their own kingdoms that were controlling. They had this influence over the people. They were the interpreters of the law. They had this religious power. And he threatened all that. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Wisdom, Wisdom chapter 2, and it describes in incredible detail, considering it was written 100 years before Uh, the birth of Christ, it describes in a wonderful way how the religious resist the just man Mm -hmm. and how he is odious to them, how he challenges them by his behavior and they feel the need to destroy him lest he would unseat them from their power. And so that gets into the, the reasons why we tend to resist the challenge of of holiness, the challenge of goodness, because we have a kingdom that we want to protect. St. Francis said it in a simple way. He said, if I had possessions, I would need weapons to defend them. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain possession that the chief priests and the Pharisees have in terms of their own power and authority that they're not willing to let go of. And so it's not so much a willingness to listen to his arguments or whether he is actually contradicting the Old Testament. They feel attacked and challenged by him and they're going to use their power to fight back and that's the fundamental dynamic and that that okay that makes a lot of sense um 
actually, uh, the, the, it's my mind's gone all over the place now. So, as you were saying about how how old the Proverbs was, it's one of the last two chapters. I forget exactly which one it was because it stood out to me. Was the part where it, I think it was the first point in the Old Testament where I could distinctly say, okay, they're talking about Jesus now or Jesus coming. And it seemed very close to the introduction to the Gospel of John, um, where first there was the Word, and the Word was when everything was created. And you know, going through that in Proverbs, having never really gone through the Old Testament before, I was like, wow, they're talking about Jesus. And then you get to the book of uh, Isaiah, and it's like, okay, he's talking about Jesus a lot. Um, or at least you can put the, knowing the end of the story, see how it, how, how it fits. And just want to say is, is that the right way of going through it reading reading them back and forth or or am i making misjudgments well, it's and missing not the point easy. that it's trying to say no you're doing you're doing wonderfully and, and it's not easy to do what you're doing because it takes a little bit of work to make it through some of those places in the old testament and understand what they mean and how they relate to Jesus, how they relate to the fullness of revelation that we have received in Christ. And so I really give you a lot of credit for doing that. That's fantastic. Uh, that's precisely what the fathers of the church did in reading back through the Old Testament. And St. Jerome said it in a very simple way. He said, the Old Testament prefigures the new, uh, the, and the, the, or sorry, the New Testament is found in the Old and the old is fulfilled in the new. Okay. So if we know what we're looking for, we find these things. There's actually a passage in uh, Genesis chapter, oh, I don't know, 18 or 20, visitors coming to Abraham. And it's interesting in the text, it waffles back and forth. It says three visitors came and he said to him, he said to Abraham. So it keeps going back and forth between three and one. Mm. And later on, of course, the, the Jews faithfully recorded this, you know, this uh, scripture. But later on, the fathers of the church said, oh, my gosh, that's talking about the Trinity. We never would have seen that until we knew about the revelation of the Trinity. These three are one. These three angels are really three persons and they are one and they are three and etc. So we start to see a lot of little connections in the Old Testament uh, as we as we look through it. I think Proverbs chapter 8 that you were talking about about wisdom who is playing at the beginning and through whom all things were made and who is uh, rejoicing in all of the elements of creation and it's a beautiful passage. And then, as you say, in Isaiah, we find a number of uh, different passages prefiguring Christ and teaching us about him. And likewise, the fathers of the church and our you know, current theologians make all of those connections. And actually, at Sunday Mass, we always have a connection between the first reading and the gospel. And a lot of times, over the three-year lectionary cycle, those connections bring out the kinds of connections that you're making between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, yeah, it's beautiful to read Scripture like that. Yeah. Well, kind of what kicked it off is, it was a couple of weeks ago, in the liturgy cycle, we're recording this today on 
on uh, the first of November. But we, uh, we, you know how in the middle of ordinary time he, they go through a bunch of parables as far as what Jesus was going through, and the one where they send the the, the I, I might be messing this up, but yeah, the the vineyard owner sends his servants ahead of him to the tenants who are running the vineyard for him because essentially they haven't paid the paid the rent and they send the servants and then they kill the servants he sends some more servants and they kill them and then they send the son and they kill them that took me until like in the middle of it i was like he's talking about himself right now he's talking about god the father and himself and all the problems before him and i'm sitting here 30 years old and i never got that until now um what's going on here what's wrong with me so um so yes, it's just a thought that came to me. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. When you set out on path that you commit yourself to practicing your faith, to praying, to reading scripture, paying attention at mass, living a sacramental life, to grow, uh, because faith is like another eye with which we see, you know, so in science now we have, uh, we have ultrasound machines or we, we have uh, special telescopes that can see infrared light, different light that we can't see with our, our naked eye. Faith is like another eye with which we see things that aren't visible to our, our, our minds, our minds unaided by, unaided by faith. And as we use faith more, we learn to use it better and we grow in that same faith. And so what you're experiencing is uh, precisely the, the benefit of having faith, of, of growing in your faith. That, that virtue, that theological virtue really grows, and you start to see more and more and more. The scriptures start to open up for you more and more and more. The, the Christian doctrine starts to fit together and make sense, and a lot of beautiful things really happen when you commit yourself and you grow in faith. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of what, what this cast was designed to do was was not just for myself, but, but for everyone out there. And hopefully we're, we're achieving that mission. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess we, we started this whole thing and kind of went on a tangent out of it. But it was coming from, from a real-life example of saying, you know, where is the point where I can't step in and fix every problem that's around me because there's just way too many. In fact, I can barely handle the stuff that's already in front of me. When is it acceptable and when is the is it the right thing to do and just say I got to I got to let the people who are going to do this one take care of it because it, it's just not my wheelhouse. I, I I can't be stepping into this. So, with that being said, where is that? Yeah, yeah, a, a great question, a really important one. And there, it's a question of discernment, too. So I can't give the answer for that in a blanket way that applies for every and every situation. But I can maybe throw out some points. First of all, we should do the things that are actually within our responsibility and our competence. So I'm not the bishop. And it's not my responsibility to fix the parish assignments. It's not really even my responsibility to 
provide correction for a priest in a particular parish. Uh, there may be an opportunity, there may be some uh, opening to do something like that, but it's not really my responsibility. The, the bishop has that responsibility. He specifically has a, a vicar general and a vicar for clergy who have that responsibility. Maybe I can work through them, something like that. But recognizing what is my responsibility in my life. Uh, it's not your responsibility, Joe. I remember this example because I, I loved it so much that you were working with a, uh, a, a contractor, a supplier that had practices that you didn't feel were ethical. And so you stopped using them. You stopped buying them or you stopped uh, subcontracting them. I don't remember exactly the details. But it's within your responsibility to say, it's not your responsibility to say, I need to go into their company to fix all of the problems. To say, I can just not give them money and hire them and work with them. Yeah, yeah, that was my granite guy. Working yeah. within the area of... Yeah, there you go. So working within the area of our own responsibility is the important thing. What is my responsibility? God willing, I hope very soon you'll have children. It'll be your responsibility to do a lot of things for those children, less and less as they get older and older and more independent. Then it becomes a place of when they're younger, you have the authority to say, you will stop that, <laughs> and there are consequences. When they're older, you'll be in a position of saying, I don't think you're helping yourself, and I wish that you would stop that, but you're a free person, and uh, you have to make your own decisions. So those things shift over time as we have authority and responsibility, and we're called to exercise that in a way that doesn't tear others down, but builds them up and redirects them, maybe does a little bit of pruning as well, so that, so that people can bear more fruit. Okay, so with, with that like being, said, oops, sorry. So w with that being said, how do you know when you're supposed to grow your responsibilities in other less obvious aspects of life? Um, for instance, yeah, obviously, um, I, I, I'm 100 certain that life will become a lot more responsibilities uh, once Teresa gets pregnant. I'm totally sure about that. But in less obvious, more subtle ways, how do you know when it's time to grow your responsibilities and and you know become better at pruning and pruning more plants to to grow more fruit? Well, what what area do you have in mind? I, that was pretty much as broad as I could make. I actually didn't have one particular area in mind. Well, um, so sometimes it's a matter of recognizing that we have responsibilities as citizens, and especially as citizens in a representational republic, democracy, whatever. Uh, we have certain responsibilities as citizens. We have responsibilities as members of counties and neighborhoods and parishes. We have responsibilities as members of families. And there are people that we look after and uh, as Pope Francis has really focused our attention, nature and creation that we look after, uh, we have a responsibility maybe not to clean up all of the rivers in Pennsylvania, but we have a responsibility not to make them worse. <laughs> you know, we have a, and we may have a responsibility to make prudential judgments to support those who can uh, 
um, maybe help to clean up some of the pollution or to resist some of the companies that are creating it, or maybe at a personal level to make an intervention and say, hey, why are you throwing that down the drain? Why are you using that um, less helpful uh, kind of soap or something? I don't know. I'm not a uh, super up-to-date on all of these things. But anyway, we have, we have responsibilities in relationships. We have responsibilities in our membership in groups, which includes our membership in you know, community, county, state, nation, world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we might find ourselves called in a special way into responsibility for a particular group of people. I think uh, we talked a little bit about some of the chance that I've had to do some mission work in China. My community, my monastic community, has had some involvement in China for 100 years. And more recently, I was asked to give some formation for religious sisters in China. And so that's a little area of responsibility. Now, probably no other listeners uh, in podcasts have responsibility for religious sisters in China. But anyway, that's something that the Lord has brought into my life. I don't have the same responsibility for them that their bishop does. Mm -hmm. But I have some responsibility, especially when I'm in the position of teaching them. And so, yeah, just being aware of what responsibilities come to us in our different roles, both generally and then kind of in a special way, uh, specific roles we might be called into. There you go. Thank you, Thank you for that answer. <laughs> so, as obviously in this cast, we, we've covered quite a bit. Is there anything that, that I missed that you want to make sure that we address here as we have a couple minutes left in it. Uh, uh, maybe the uh, one of the consequences of that question and that way of thinking, which I really appreciate, is we have to be careful about overstepping our bounds and getting our nose into things that are not our responsibility. Um, sometimes, if we're in a certain position, that's a, a kind of micromanagement. I'm dealing with things at too ref refined a level. Uh, so a president of a company who's getting involved in how the printer cartridges get reordered or something, it's like, why are you doing that? You know, why are you micromanaging this person who's an office manager who has, who's perfectly capable of doing that? And um, Or, you know, the, the classic we talk about the, the national government getting involved at very local level things. If if the president starts worrying about the finances of St. Vincent College, something is very broken. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, one kind of over-responsibility or, or misapplication. On the other hand, I'm not in the position of the president. I don't have all the information that he has. I can make certain decisions because I am given a vote. But for me to just pontificate about all the ways that he ought to be behaving and all the way that he's good or that he's bad and that and having all of this judgment and criticism is another kind of danger. Whether that's the president or the bishop or even the pastor or people who are in authority have more information than I do and they have the grace also to carry out their office. I might have some preferences. I might, from my position, see things differently and think, 
maybe I would handle things differently, but I'm not in their position. I don't have their information. So we have to be careful about being an armchair quarterback uh, with too much uh, vigor and vinegar in that. Uh, And then we also have to be careful. A third caution would be underestimating my responsibility, saying, uh, you know, the classic example is the, the people in Germany who knew that Jews were being taken away and had a suspicion that they were being exterminated, but they didn't want to know, they didn't want to speak up because they didn't want to end up on those trains with the Jews. And remaining a bystander when there's a grave injustice against human beings taking place, that could do something to speak out or to intervene or whatever, that's hard, but we have to be aware of that and ask that question of ourselves as well. Well, that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, like I said, I, I definitely would like to thank you for, for giving us your wisdom here today, Father. Um, at some point, we, we're going to be going into some of the topics from the sacraments of last podcast, and I'd also like to just try to figure out what's going on in some of these Old Testament books that just are crazy, some of them, that I just don't understand what they're what they're trying to get across. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening.